we have been on a journey uh, through our Bible trying to see what God has said about the gathered worship of His people. And I have said to you as we have gone through the journey that the private worship of every individual is of utmost importance to God. It is very precious to God. He enables that worship. He desires that worship. We see examples of that worship throughout the Scripture. But that worship must never take the place of or supersede the gathered worship of His people. And so our series has been focused on the gathered worship, the corporate worship that the people of God render to God. And as we made our way through the early part of our Bible, for thousands of years, God mandated that His people worship Him in a particular sacred place. And we began that journey looking at the book of Exodus, and we saw the place there would be the tabernacle as it was set up in the very middle of God's people. Later, as God brought His people into the land, He had promised Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob and to the patriarchs. Uh, When Joshua brought those people in and later David conquered Jerusalem, and we see the center of worship moving from the tabernacle that was set up at Shiloh now to the central sanctuary that Solomon built on a sacred mountain in Jerusalem. So worship in the Old Testament was mandated to a particular place at specified times, three times a year. God's people had to make their way to this mountain and appear at that temple to celebrate who God was and to commemorate what God had done and to offer sacrifices that would remind them of what God would one day do to make possible what He promised uh, in Deuteronomy and in the Pentateuch that He would come and dwell with His people. And so worship was at a sacred place. It was at specified times, the appointed feasts, the Sabbaths, and by prescribed means. You had to come with certain sacrifices. You had to come by means of ritual cleansing. You had to come when you came with offerings. This worship was made possible by a covenant that had been mediated to God's people by Moses. It was mediated to them by a priesthood that was established by God and led by Aaron to a particular group of people, a nation that God had called unto Himself. And that nation had been formed into a particular kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. It was ruled by a chosen king, the Davidic dynasty. And it pointed forward to the coming of a messianic champion. All of this was part of the worship of Israel. And then one day, a Jewish rabbi had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at an ancient well and changed everything. He changed everything. We listened in on that conversation, didn't we, when we heard Jesus make the astonishing claim that the hour had arrived and now was when, in the plan of God, a whole new class of worshipers would be called into being. God was seeking such worshipers, the true worshipers. And when those worshipers were called into being by God, when they were summoned by God and and cleansed by God and and given a new covenant that was very different than the covenant God had given through Moses when those worshipers were summoned and called together. They would worship at a very different place 
Jesus was answering a place question. If you remember, when the woman said to him, look, we have a question uh, as Samaritans. You Jews tell us we got to worship on that mountain, and our fathers have always worshipped on this mountain, and so I want to know which mountain is the right mountain. And when Jesus answered that question, He wasn't telling her some spiritual mumbo-jumbo. He was actually changing the location of worship. It's not going to be on that mountain, and it's not going to be on this mountain. It is in a completely different location. The location where the true worshipers will now render worship that is acceptable to the Father is in the Spirit. That's the new location of the worship. And so we spent some time saying, well, where in the world is the Spirit if He's the location? And we began to understand that Jesus was doing something stunning. He is the cornerstone of a brand new temple. And that temple is described for you in Ephesians chapter 2, and you are living stones that God is placing in the architecture of this magnificent temple And right in the center of that temple dwells the Holy Spirit of God. And that's where we worship. And the very first time in our Bible where you see these kind of new worshipers rendering that kind of acceptable worship to God is in Acts chapter 2. It's a stunning passage. Now, when you read your New Testament, it's interesting, isn't it, that you have very, very little texts that actually prescribe what actually happens in worship. In fact, we have very few descriptions of an actual worship service in the New Testament. We have one where the preacher preached and somebody fell asleep. Do you remember this? And what happened when he fell asleep? He died. And so the biblical application of that is don't sleep when your preacher preaches. And you're like, well, if you wouldn't preach so long, I wouldn't sleep. Uh, So I'll just have to take that as the Holy Spirit's application of my life. But we have a a description. But here in Acts chapter 2, we actually have something described for us that I believe lays out for us the four components of biblical worship. And so as, as we... Think about this as we make our way through how all of this works together. You find some interesting things about the people who are rendering this worship. As they come together in Acts chapter 2, this worship is being rendered by believers. Which is one of the reasons why a church like ours is so careful about who it admits into its membership. We have a a, a regenerated membership. You'll hear us talk about that. If you've ever come through 101, we make a point about that. If you want to join our church, you have to give credible evidence that you have repented of your sins and that the Spirit of God resides in you. It isn't enough to just say, I believe in Jesus. It isn't enough to just say, I know that He died on the cross. I Uh, I know that He rose again on the third day. Believe on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. The demons... Know that. James 2 is very clear about that. There are people all over the world who are not regenerated who can make that statement. The Spirit of God 
has to reside in you. Romans chapter 8 gives the defining mark of a Christian as the presence of the Spirit of God dwelling in a person. And the reason that is so important for worship is in John chapter 4, that is the location that, that Jesus, the head of the church that he was founding, established for worship. And so it was offered by believers. It was offered willingly and intentionally and thoughtfully and regularly as you go through the book of Acts. They constantly show up at the temple at the portico of Solomon. That was a huge, huge area. Many of you have been to Israel and you've seen the ruins of the Temple Mound and what's up there. And you can imagine as you're standing there, this immense area at the top of the stairs where people gathered. And thousands of people could gather there. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what you find. You find 3,000 of them gathering. And and throughout the book of Acts, they're going to show back up there and they're going to render worship. Now, what did they do when they worshipped? I've called the message word-shaped or word-centered worship for word-shaped living. So what did they offer up to God? What were the components of their worship? And I want to show you four of them. And uh, we're going to look at one this morning. The first component and the chief component of their worship was the authoritative expositional preaching of the apostolic instruction. They devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostolic teaching, to the public preaching of God's Word as a chief component of their worship. They devoted themselves, secondly, to fellowship. This is referencing not the thing we do in the back when we say hi to one another or maybe when we go and you show up at somebody's home and there's food and coffee and you have good fellowship together. That's an incredible part of body dynamic, and, and we need more and more of that, and I'm thankful for what we have here, but that's not what this term is talking about. This is talking about gospel partnerships that advance the gospel, that strengthen the church and the mature believers. The kind of partnership that Paul had when he talked to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, and he thanks them for their partnership, their fellowship in the gospel. And so fellowship of this nature is part of their worship. Breaking of bread, the regular rehearsing of the gospel, the work of Christ that makes possible the existence of the church. The regular rehearsing of that through the symbol that God has given to us that that doesn't actually give us grace in the sense that it imparts that grace salvifically to us, but it is a means that God has given to us to help us constantly run to the source of that grace, the breaking of bread. And then corporate praying that is Scripture-shaped and Bible-saturated. You know, sometimes we listen in on conversations and you hear people talk about what what the praying of the church has to look like. And there have to be these six different kinds of prayers or these four different kinds of prayers, and they got to happen here and here and here. And there's nothing wrong with praying that way in a service. Please don't listen and hear me say you shouldn't do that. But you don't see an example of that anywhere in the Scripture. You see examples at times in the gathered worship of Israel, maybe on a day of national confession where there is a prayer of confession. But what you do see, wherever the early churches gathered together to pray, when they pray, they are praying prayers that are shaped by Scripture. 
Their prayers are biblical prayers. They are Bible-based, Scripture-shaped praying, and it produces in them a deep joy and a God-confidence in what is coming. And so these are the components of worship in the early church. And I want us to look at the first of those, the one that the apostles gave the primacy of place, and that is the public proclamation of apostolic preaching. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question. And I want us to let the apostles answer that question for us this morning. What is it about preaching? What is it about spirit-enabled, expositional preaching that makes it such a central and primary component of gathered worship? I mean, what is it? So when, when we come to church, worship isn't the first part of the service. And then we stop worship and somebody comes up and opens the Bible and they start teaching or they start preaching. And a lot of times, certainly as we talk about this, we have the worship and then we have the preaching. And I hope in your life and in your mind, as you listen to the apostles this morning, you eradicate that way of thinking out of your head. Worship is word-based. And the entirety of what we do from the moment we gather together and we pray together and we sing together and we hear the Word together, all of that is worship. And so we have to ask the question, what is it about Spirit-enabled preaching that makes it such a central and primary component of worship for Christ's church? And I want to give you three answers from the apostles this morning. All right. The first of them is this. Preaching is central to our worship because of its spiritual nature. Preaching is central to worship because of its spiritual nature. And you can see this really in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we want to talk about why that is so important. It would be a mistake, in my opinion to look at that phrase and focus on who was doing the preaching or the teaching. As though it were the apostles that made the preaching worship. They were the mouthpiece by which what God intended to teach the church was delivered. In other words, I'm arguing that while the apostles were the first authoritative preachers in the early church, they were not the only authoritative preachers, and they were not the focus. The focus was on what was being preached. It was on the preaching. Soon after the apostles comes Paul, who was appointed and recognized as an authoritative preacher and teacher of the doctrine that God delivered through the Holy Spirit to his church. And beyond Paul, there were other gifted men that were set apart. Ephesians chapter 4 identifies Four kinds of men that God gave to the early church. There were apostles, there were prophets, there were evangelists, and there were pastor teachers. And so there were other teachers that spoke authoritatively early on in the church. And two of them, some of the clearest examples are the two of them to whom Paul constantly writes, Timothy and Titus in our New Testament. And God instructed the entire church that when these men get up and they do expositional, spirit-enabled preaching, 
You need to listen to their preaching. Now, now catch what I'm saying. You're not listening to them because of their, themselves, right? We are supposed to imitate their life. They are supposed to live out their preaching, and so Hebrews is very clear about this. But there is a command in Scripture for me and for you to listen when God speaks His Word through the preaching and gathered worship. And there is a great blessing that is accrued to us, Hebrews 13, 7 says, and there is a great danger when we fail to do that. So what is it about preaching? What is it about the teaching of these men whom God called and appointed in the church and authorized to teach and preach His Word? What is it about their preaching that made it worship? And I would say to you, it's worship and it's central to worship because of what it is. It is the Word of God at work in the life of believers. And if we're really going to buy that, we need two texts that are going to help us. And the first of those is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this text teaches us that when a Spirit-enabled preacher stands up and opens the Word of God and preaches that Word to you, it is the way God is revealing truth to you that is at work in you. Listen to the text. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul said, We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God. And that Word is at work in you, believers. The content of what Paul's talking about is not his own ideas. It's not his own preferences. It's not his own thoughts. It's the Word of God. And the manner in which this instruction was given was through preaching. Through the public declaration of the content. And the recognition that believers gave to that was that they received it not just as stuff that Paul was saying to them, but as stuff God was saying, as words that were coming through Paul from God to them. And the evidence of this was that whatever Paul was preaching was so attended to by the Spirit of God that it was actively at work in the lives of the hearers. So that's text number one. Text number two teaches us that God ordained to make His Word known through the preaching that He entrusts to authorized, appointed preachers that have been set apart by the church. Listen to Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So whatever is going on here has to do with something that God wants to do for the faith of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages. And then here's the text I want you to hear. At the proper time, He manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of the Savior. So, Men and women, as we sit here this morning and we listen to God's Word, and I have to listen to it as much as you have to listen to it, this is how God reveals His will to us. There is, this is part of a chain that God established 
in terms of how he got his words into your heart. How did something that was in the mind of God get known to you? And the answer is God revealed it. He revealed it to certain set-apart individuals, and those individuals were moved by the Holy Spirit to write it down in inspired language in documents that make up our Bible. And you and I hold that Bible, and we think, okay, that's it. And in terms of inspiration, that's it. But in terms of how God makes His Word known, we have a text here that says God is going to take that Word and He's going to use appointed, set-apart people who are going to preach that Word to you and He's going to make His will known to you through that preaching. And that's why preaching isn't just another thing we do after worship. This is why preaching is worship. And you and I need to see those two texts. And that brings us to the reason that it is so important is because not just of what it is, but, but how is it to be done? And, and Paul says, let me give you how this, or Peter rather, Peter says, listen, everybody in the body has been given a gift. Paul said that to the uh, Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4. You have a gift. This is one of the reasons why you will hear Pastor Ken, who's our pastor for leadership and development and strategic employment and planning, talk so much about serving. Because you have a gift. There's a word right up here on the stage. It's the word go. And for many of you in your mind, it's like, well, i got to pack up my, my bags and go somewhere. And that's not what go means. Go means serve where God has placed you with the gift that God has given you. Everybody in this room has a gift that God measured out to you through Christ by His Spirit. And He intends, by use of that gift, to build His church and to bless His body and to advance the Gospel. And Peter says... You could take all the gifts in this room and you can put them in two categories. Now that's not all the gifts, but all the gifts in this room fit into two categories. There are gifts that God gave to people in this room that are predominantly serving gifts. And when you use that gift in the strength that God supplies, stunning things happen. And then there's another category of gifts that God measured out to people, and He measured out different quantities and different abilities of this gift, but but this gift has been measured out to people in the church. And some of those people are women, and some of those people are men, but then there are certain men that are biblically called and biblically qualified and set apart by the church, and those men, when they speak, are to speak as the oracles of God. We don't talk that way in our language today, and so when we think about an oracle, it's like, oh, what is that? There used to be one in Delphi way long ago in Greek mythology, if I remember correctly, but I have no idea what an oracle means. And the simple definition of an oracle is this, you are the mouth of God. You are the mouth of God. Which is why God has so much to say to the people who stand up and open up His Word. Like, for example... Study to show yourself what? Approved to who? To God. 
And the thing you are to give such energy and such devotion to is to make sure that when you open up this Word that God gave that He's about to deliver through you to His people, that you cut it straight so they come to right conclusions about God. One of the most terrifying questions for a person in my shoes is this. Standing before God one day and God saying to me, why did you tell my people at Palmetto I said that? What gave you the right to get up in front of my people for whom I died and I called them together to do a mission for me and you got up week after week and you filled up their heads with your own thoughts, your own ideas, your own applications, your little illustrations that you thought were so cool and I gave you something to give to those people. Why did you tell them I said that? That is a terrifying question. For a preacher. And believe me, those of us who labor in the Word here, we feel that question. And that's why we have to take the time to study these words carefully and interpret them accurately and proclaim them authoritatively and graciously and defend them boldly and then allow the Spirit of God to apply them. And here's what I want to make sure you understand and that is this, when... When somebody like me stands up and preaches, the authority doesn't rest with me. Because I have no authority that's any different than anybody else in this church. The authority and what makes what's happening in this moment worship is not me, it's the Word of God that the Spirit of God is energizing and enabling and illuminating in your life. It is at work in you, which is what Paul said. And so what makes preaching worship is the fact that it is part of the process that God designed to get His mind into your heart in a way that would live, that, that, that these words would, bring, words would bring life to you and strength to you and joy to you. And, and the reason that all of this is important is because of what requires in you. It requires something of you. It requires something of me. It requires a willingness to be instructed and it requires an eagerness to embrace the instruction. And that's what Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians 13, 2.13, we thank God constantly that when you received the Word of God, that word means you welcomed it. The Word you heard from us, you accepted it. You didn't resist it. You didn't cut against it. You didn't say no in your heart. You ever found yourself, I know I found myself in this place where you felt like the preacher was taking a shot at you from the pulpit. You ever felt that way? I can't believe he's doing that. I remember one time I was preaching a message uh, up in uh, Wisconsin, and I was standing after the uh, message was done, and this guy comes up, and Beth and I are standing there, and we're greeting people. This is how we used to do it in the old times. You know, you stand there, and everybody's shaking your hand. Thank you, thank you for coming, thank you for coming. Good. That was a nice mass, Father. Da da da. And so, you know, oh, there's a visitor. You know, so you kind of recognize that. <clears throat> This doesn't really happen here at Palmetto because everybody in God's good creation was born a Christian 
and they know everything about the Lord. And so there's a lot of lost people in churches like ours that aren't really convinced they're lost. And so that's part of the work God has to do. I don't even know why I got on the rabbit trail. But here I am, shaking hands, shaking hands. And this guy comes up and he stands right in front of me and he says, you were in my mailbox. You were reading my mail. <clears throat> I'd never had anybody say that to me. I've had people say weird stuff after church. I'm like, ah. he goes, did my wife talk to you? I'm like, sir, number one, I don't know who you are, and I've never met your wife. But I'm sure she's a nice lady. And the point he was making was, you were saying things up here that somebody had to tell you about me. And I was saying things up here that somebody wanted him to hear, but they didn't tell me. That was the Holy Spirit of God. Have you ever found yourself listening to a sermon? Maybe it's on the radio. Maybe it's something you didn't expect and all of a sudden you're listening to a sermon and the Spirit of God takes the words that are being rightly preached and rightly interpreted from the Word of God and brings them to bear in your life. And while you earlier were so glad you were listening to a sermon, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not buying that. Now, I'm not talking about just blindly swallowing. I mean, the Bible talks very clearly about a group of Christians that are commended because they went to see whether these things were what? So, so we're not talking about blind, okay, whatever the guy up there says. That's, I'm talking about when you go to the Scriptures and you interpret them rightly and you see them clearly and somebody's up there talking and empowered by the Spirit and you resist This is what preaching as worship demands of you. It demands of the preacher a careful attention to the words, and it it demands of all of us, myself included, a willing receptivity of the words. Preaching is central to worship because of its nature, but it's also central to worship because of its function, because of what it does. So what does the Scripture rightly preached do? In corporate worship, it reveals words from God that lead to the assurance of life. It reveals words from God that lead to the assurance of life. 2 Timothy 1, 8-13, Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You remember that text there? And he goes on to talk about God saving him and calling him and making him uh, a part of the gospel for which he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. There's our preaching, teaching individual who's now going to be taking these words. And this is what he says, I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that which has been entrusted to me. Then he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. How did Paul build his own assurance so that he was fully convinced he used the words of Scripture? These words reveal the will of God that deliver us from error and lead us to a scripturally obedient life. 
You can see this in 2 Timothy 2 as well. 2 Timothy 2 verses 23 have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. How many Christians get sidetracked with foolish, ignorant debates about all manner of things and they breed quarrels. But the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they may come to their sense and escape the snare of the devil. Listen, it is the Word of God rightly preached in worship and applied by the Spirit of God to the place in your life that needs correcting, that brings you to a deeper knowledge of truth. All of this leads to a spiritually mature life. All Scripture, Paul went on to say, is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, mature, equipped, prepared for every good work. How does God do this through preaching? Well, Paul lays it out. In preaching, God teaches us what His will is. He shows us righteousness. He reproves us by exposing and revealing where our thinking, our living, our value system is at variance with something He has said in His Word. He corrects us. He restores. This is a rebuilding. This is not a sitting down getting a scolding kind of correcting. This is what happens when you have something that is growing in a certain direction and you want it to grow in a different direction. And you put all kinds of support that restore what has been lost and repair what has been damaged. And ladies and gentlemen, this is why soul care in a church like Palmetto is of utmost importance. It's part of worship. The care of my soul, the care of your soul, isn't going to happen because we sat somewhere and read four books and, and watched a, a self-help tape and went to some you know, 12-step program. The real help for our soul is when somebody is going to take the Word of God rightly applied, correctly interpreted, and help us to speak true to our soul. It is the Scripture that brings life. It is, it is why we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You hear us talk about inspiration. You hear us talk about inerrancy. And we love those words here. But there are two words we love as well. And they're authority and sufficiency. And that's why soul care matters. We teach, we reprove, we correct, and we train in righteousness. And the idea there is that we establish and we strengthen the moral character and the ethical conduct of one another in ways that please God. And when that happens, when the Word of God is at work in my life and in your life, it has a wonderful effect. And that's the third reason that preaching is worship. And it is so central to worship. It's not just because of its nature, and it's not just because of its function. It is because of the effect that the Spirit of God produces it calls us to a word-shaped life. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You know this, right? Can you remember it from the old King James? And I memorized it in the King James, and some of you did as well. Can you remember? I beseech you what? I beseech you therefore who? Brethren. 
How did you become a brethren or a sisterin? How did you become that? Wow, 11 chapters of amazing truth about what God did to accomplish a righteousness through His living obedience that is now my righteousness. 11 chapters of an atonement He made for a debt that He didn't owe that forever canceled a whole section that takes me out of the old Adam and puts me in the new Adam. And I'm now part of a community where whatever happens to the head of the community happens to me. Whatever happened to the old Adam happened to me. And whatever's going to happen to the new Adam happens to me. There's a whole 11 chapters of this incredible truth. And the word God chose to sum it all up is the word mercy. Plural. On the basis of all of that theology, brethren, I beseech you by that mercy that you present your bodies, what? And alive, a living sacrifice that is holy, fully devoted. Your body, who you are in its entirety, in its totality, you are dedicating to God for His use in a way that is whole and complete and acceptable to Him. What prayer do I have to be acceptable in His sight? Now that I'm a Christian, I'm just going to ratchet up my obedience meter. I'm going to ratchet up my my outward appearance meter. I'm going to ratchet up my Bible reading meter. And you know what I did? I just became a really good Baptist Catholic. And, And the book of Romans explodes all of that out of our life and says to us, you don't need that little plastic obedience and that little monopoly righteousness. You've got an obedience that the second member of the Trinity obtained for you. It's yours. No disobedience you ever do can touch that obedience. It's so stunning, it's almost scandalous, isn't it? And I'm going to submit to you, if it doesn't push you almost to the edge of scandal, I'm not sure we understood it. There is a scandalous obedience that Christ accomplished, and it's yours. It's the active obedience of Christ. And that's why our little plastic efforts at it, our little tinker toy villages of righteous buildings that we build and all the little stuff we do is so frustrating to us and so useless to the kingdom. And it starves our souls. You say, well, Pastor, what in the world is going to keep people, if you talk like that, I mean, what's really going to keep people from going off the rails? Truth. Romans 1 through 11. There's like a massive section right there in the middle that talks about what we're supposed to do with our bodies. Stop taking the body that Christ redeemed. Stop showing up to your old master and saying, Okay, here I am. What do you want me to do with my hands? Where do you want me to put my eyes? Where do you want? Go to your new master. And take the body that you used to do for all of this stuff that was wicked, of which you're now embarrassed, take your body now to the new master and let him use your body. 
That's what word-shaped living looks like. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to have a word-governed life. Because Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed, right, by the renewing of your mind, that you may test and discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In a congregation where we sit week after week after week and we listen to the careful, accurate, Spirit-energized preaching of God's Word, whether it's through a pastor or through somebody that is brought in under the governance of the elders to let the Word loose in our life, when that happens in a congregation, and we as a congregation, myself included, do our part to eagerly receive it and willingly embrace it, beautiful things happen. Beautiful things happen. Romans chapter 12, personal transformation happens in the congregation. Colossians 1.28, spiritual maturity happens in the congregation. Colossians 3.12, congregational unity comes out of this. Corporate stability and theological fidelity in Ephesians chapter 4. Marvelous spiritual protection in Ephesians chapter 6. Bountiful joy and blessing, James chapter 1. Abundant fruitfulness. 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 11. And that's just a little tiny bit of what happens in a congregation when God's people are enabled by God's Spirit to embrace willingly and receive joyfully the Word that God is giving to them as part of their worship. So as we close this morning, what do we do with a message like this? I mean, it's like, Pastor, you just preached on preaching. It's like, come on, we're not dumb here. We know why you did that. You want us to listen to you. And so we're going to listen to you. Now you can go preach on some other stuff and don't preach on that for a while. Okay, that, you know, on a very basic level, if that's what you and I think, I think we might have missed most of what God was trying to say to us. God is actually trying to say that as we come to worship, part of our worship is to engage by the Spirit's power with the Word that is being preached. You don't come to worship just to sit and hear. You come to engage. So how do I do that? Let me give you three quick ideas and then we'll pray and be done. Question number one, do I hear and engage with the preaching when I come together for corporate worship? Do I discipline myself to pay attention carefully to what is being said? Do I listen prayerfully? Lord, help me to grasp this. I, I've never seen that before. This sounds strange to my ears. Lord, help me to remember this so that when I leave here, I can go and research that and see what your word really says. God, is this something you want for me? Is this thought that's coming in my heart that is resistant to the preaching? And saying, no, that's really not for you. Is that from you or is that from somewhere else? Lord, I need your help to understand and see the redemptive purposes in what's being preached. Are you just a listener that sits there and kind of waits for it to be done? Or are you engaging in worship when you listen to preaching and gathered worship? And that brings me to my second question. And this one is to all of us. What do we do with what we've heard after Corporate worship. Do I make an attempt 
as I'm listening to preaching to jot down the legitimate things that God is saying to me. You know, this, this relationship you have with your wife went wonkers this week. And you're like, I know. I wish the pastor would preach on John 3.16. Relationship with your kid is strained, and it's been strained for a long time. And, and if I'm not careful, I can say, well, that's not relevant to this, and I just shut it down. Have you ever just said, God, is your, as I listen to His preaching, bring things to mind that I'm going to have to sift with the power of your Spirit to know what to do with? Do I prayerfully commit to live obediently in light of what is being preached? I mean, contrary to what some of you may think, the, the elders don't sit around and try to figure out kind of what you need to hear. We do on a larger level. Like we're having a discussion right now as elders about the fall series. What's it going to be? How are we going to bring it? What are the needs of the congregation? So at that level we do. But nobody's sitting around going, okay, this person has this problem in their marriage and this is a really great opportunity to go at it. That's not what happens in preaching here. That may be what happens in other places. That doesn't happen here. So if the Spirit of God is bringing something to bear in your life, are you receiving it? And are you committing? A big question for me that I have to answer is this. As a pastor, when was the last time I repented at something I preached? or Something God showed me in the Word. When was the last time I repented? How well do I retain what God has taught me over time? I mean, some of you have been coming to Palmetto for years and there have been series that God has taken you through through the different men who have stood in this pulpit. How well have you retained that? Do you take notes? Do you have a, a way to preserve what God has been teaching you? Do, you, do you? When the God of heaven speaks to you through a sermon, is it important enough for you to even try to write it down somewhere? Do you take advantage of the resources that are available to you in our equip hour, in our community group? Or is that just sort of like a thing that is in the way? And I'm going to suggest to you that part of the reason that I think some of us may struggle in our souls with things that we shouldn't be struggling with at this stage in our life is because God has been giving us grain week after week after week. And we're like that farmer who's in a field somewhere and all of this rich grain is coming and it's showering right down on us and we don't even have a basket to put it in. And when we're done, we get up and all of that grain just lays around us in big piles and off we go and we don't have anything to make spiritual bread out of when we desperately need its strength. Proverbs says, buy the truth and don't sell it. And the idea there is not that you are purchasing truth. It's the idea that you value the truth that you receive week after week after week so that you preserve it in your life. You know, I think if I did more of this in my life, you would have a better pastor. Beth would have a better husband. My kids would have a better dad. God would have a better servant. It's not going to come because I try harder. It isn't going to come because I say 10 I'm sorry's. 
It's actually going to come the way Paul talked when he said the Word of God is at work in you. And this is why in Hebrews chapter 13, he said very clearly, listen to the leaders God has put over you. And it's not because those leaders are power hungry. As they open up the Word of God to give you counsel, when Pastor Ben or others in this congregation give you counsel from God's Word, there ought to be a real reticence in your life before you just dismiss it and say, you know what, that's just your opinion. I'll find another pastor who has a different opinion. I think every pastor has had this experience where people come and they say they want advice. But what they really want is they want affirmation. I'm going to tell you what I've already decided to do and I want you to affirm it. And when you don't, they get angry. And that's the point of what I think Paul's trying to say to us. As we listen to the Word that is coming through places like preaching or through the appointed means in which the Word is delivered to us in the soul care of a church like this, before you dismiss it, make sure that it's not grain God wants you to have and God wants you to store. Buy the truth and don't sell it.